0: This is Under Review, a podcast about rethinking humanities graduate education, a collaboration of the University of California Humanities Research Institute, and the University of Florida Center for the Humanities and the Public
1: Sphere. I'm June Key, a Comparative Literature PhD student at the University of California, Irvine. I'm Lauren Burrell-Cox, an English PhD student at the University of Florida. We believe that discussions of career diversity should not only consider careers beyond the university, but also think through structural problems within the university. Each episode, we speak with
0: experts about issues surrounding prestige, labor, contingency, and diverse postdoctoral
1: pathways. It's time to put graduate education under under review. review. This episode, we examine collaboration in the humanities and how collaborative projects open up new pathways for scholarship with a special focus on the National Humanities Center Podcasting Institute. First, Lauren and I reveal how we met and started our podcasting journey. We also catch up with the two other grad students we worked with at the NHC Podcasting Institute. Finally, we speak with Andy Mink, Vice President for Education Programs at the National Humanities Center, about his work organizing institutes that provide grad students with skills in the public humanities and teaching. First up, here's Lauren with our meet-cute story.
0: June and I first met on Zoom in the summer of 2020 during the bewilderment of the first wave of the pandemic and in the midst of a national reckoning of racialized police brutality. We had enrolled in a podcasting institute organized by the National Humanities Center. Originally, it was supposed to take place in San Diego, but like everything at that time, it was switched to a virtual format. During an intensive four days, we created a podcast with two other graduate students that attempted to process the events that had upended our lives. In the spring of 2021, June and I crossed paths again when we worked on podcast episodes about the National Humanities Centers and our Image, Artificial Intelligence, and the Humanities Conference. Throughout our whole time working and podcasting together, June and I have never actually met in person. I've mostly only seen her head and her shoulders within the confines of her Zoom box, and she's only seen that much of me. There are a few positive things that have come from the pandemic, but the possibilities for virtual collaboration is one of them. During our week together at the Institute, June documented our group and made an audio essay about it for the podcast our group produced. Here's a clip of us first meeting one another. Talk to each other, share your stories about where you come from, your education, your work, what matters to you, and how the last five months have impacted you.
1: This was the first day of the Podcasting Institute. We didn't know one another yet, and we met for the first time Zooming in from San Diego, Gainesville, Charlottesville, and Irvine.
0: Uh, well, hi, I'm Lauren. I go to the University of Florida. I'm a PhD student studying film, and I study documentary and experimental film. And how have the last five months impacted me? Well, a lot has been going on, <laughs> on a personal as well as a global level. I would say I've learned how to be alone a little bit more than I used to, but I've also been looking a lot for connections and lots of Zooming, as we're doing now.
2: Uh, I can go next. Yeah, Um, go for it. Okay. Uh, I'm Kevin. Uh, I go to the University of Virginia, grad student there, getting my PhD in uh, ancient history. So it's like Greeks and Romans. Oh, what matters to you? Uh, I guess I kind of want like my, those things that I study to sort of like make them relevant to today. I mean, there's like such a big gap between then and now, but I find it very interesting and important.
1: Hi, I'm June. Um, So I am from Wuhan, China, the center, or what was the center of the current coronavirus outbreak. Um, I go to school at UC Irvine, and um, I'm getting a PhD in comparative literature. But specifically, my work focuses on independent Chinese film and representations of trauma.
3: Um, hi, everyone. I'm Marina. Um I'm here in San Diego. It would have been great if we like, all got to see each other here. But um, I'm, I go to UCSD. Um, I'm a history uh, PhD in Middle East Studies. Uh, I was born in Egypt, actually. And um, I was raised here in San Diego, but like, I go back and forth. Um, And I'd spend my summers in Egypt and like all my family's still there. And what matters to me is, um, so I'm Coptic and the stories that I'm telling are, are really personal to my community also.
1: We spent many hours together over the course of four days talking on Zoom. And although none of us had ever made a podcast before, we wanted to play with the boundaries of the medium. We used a variety of genres and infused our podcast with humor, collaborating on a meditation for grad students, a fake ad for a tenure-track job, a mailbag segment, and documentary audio pieces on the connections created online during the 2020 lockdown. Two,
0: like, one year later, we're doing it again.
1: More than a year later,
0: June and I scheduled a call to catch up with Kevin and Myrna, we reflected on how this experience was really one of the first times we had collaborated with other grad students in such an engaged way, reminisced about the summer, and chatted about looking for jobs as we near the end of the PhD.
2: I feel like I had basically no collaborative projects at grad school in terms of academic, like the actual work that I was doing. All the collaborative stuff was our student government, our sort of internal graduate student history or history graduate student government I think probably this podcast the podcast that we made was probably the first actual like collaborative project where something was created with my name on it which is crazy to think about
0: we talked about the benefits of collaboration Right.
2: I like the feedback aspect of it. You kind of get
0: feedback in real time instead of sitting and writing something that you sit on for a couple months and then right. send out and then maybe get your feedback after right. that. For me, sometimes it's like an explosion of ideas in a way that I don't feel like I get with my writing.
3: I think it also feels a little more supportive. Collaboration. I think collaboration just feels like everyone is is encouraging everyone. We're all invested in each other's work, I think, and trying to make it go forward and, and move forward together. But I think it's rare to find, like, a program that's reserved or set up for grad students to be collaborative. I think it's it's more like, here's the expectation of you as a grad student and make it happen. And I guess if you don't take the initiative, you or a group of people, I don't, I don't think a lot of collaboration really comes out unless you seek it out.
0: We then pooled our experiences and discovered that we only knew one person altogether— who had co-authored an article in The Humanities. We wondered, why is this the case when co-authorship is so common in other fields, such as the sciences and social sciences?
3: I wonder why, like, that. that is a challenge. Yeah, I, I think about the reasons. Like, I don't know why. I...
0: I think it's that it's hard for them to, like, see who did what, because The Humanities is so about how much work did you do, that when you collaborate because you can't see everything behind the scenes, it's you know, it makes it hard for them to accept who's responsible for what part instead of just thinking about maybe that's not how we should look at collaboration. We should look at the product of two people coming together, not about like who did what. We then reminisced on our virtual collaboration of making a podcast together in the summer of 2020. I mean, I think I had some of the best conversations I'd had in a really long time with all of you. I think that it was really nice that we were able you know, we were all there to make the podcast, but we all had our different kind of backgrounds when we were coming at it. But then we all kind of had these same questions and concerns. I kind of remember us venting a lot about what's going on in yeah. the human, even though it was sad to talk about, it, it was also at the same time kind of empowering to know that there are people all over who are, you know, going through that or have similar thoughts and that we could all come together and talk about them.
3: Yeah, it sounded like we were kind of processing it together. So I mean, talking about collaboration, that was something right there. Like we we're just collaborating in our in our understanding of the world around us and trying to figure out. Like I mean, this was also like when the pandemic was just starting to turn things into virtual, I think, or people getting getting used to the virtual idea of things. I don't know. Now it's like been a year later, and I think people are trying to get out of the virtual and trying to get back in the world like one foot out because we're still trying to think if we should even be outside or not but yeah it was it was a it was a crazy time and I think I was really glad we documented it and yeah when I think back on it it's just like it's really interesting how a year ago or a little more than a year ago we were just like oh this is gonna end soon hopefully I mean it's crazy when we we think
1: back I feel like we're still it's funny because we're still talking about zoom one year later I feel like we could have like a series of these meetings. It's just like one meeting a year for 10 years when we talk about Zoom on Zoom. <laughs> I think then
0: finally one day we're going to have to plan to like all meet up in
1: person. <laughs> it's like 10 awesome. years later, we still never met in person. <laughs> like, yeah. We're all like 40. <laughs> we each other. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's like we never, we only
0: ever see, you know, this much of everyone's face. That's it. <laughs> Making a podcast together helped us to think about alternative career paths and the stigma associated with considering them in graduate school.
3: I think a lot of times PhD students, at least in the humanities, we've kind of believed the idea that like our degree is like very humanities, if it's humanities oriented, there's not much we can do outside of that. But a lot of employers like the soft skills that we have as humanities PhDs is huge I mean skills like actually we're talking about collaboration but like also communication being able to deconstruct really big concepts and communicate the ideas of that clearly especially how we all think about like institutions or breaking down what it means to have an institution or um, power dynamics that we're always exploring these are all like huge topics that we always think about in our work but that's not what a lot of other fields kind of focus on so I think humanities PhDs we have we offer a lot to people in other fields but we kind of have or maybe uh, at least I I thought that we like internalized an identity that a humanities person can only be doing humanities and I think it's I think it's a lot I think it's a lot more open than that like I I was mentioning consulting but like there's so many different kinds of consulting there's like advocacy work we can be doing there's
1: Nonprofit work we can be doing yeah Yeah. that's what we can offer (laughs) yeah I think it's hard because you're right there's that kind of identity that we we often internalize and I think it's because the environment tells us that we are good you know we are good at just writing papers about films and that's that's what we should do as our next step I mean do you guys feel like pressures to continue by like your advisor like down the academic path or by other people
2: yeah I think it it doesn't come from like a bad place I think it comes from most professors have gotten to where they are probably because they haven't had to question that path all that often because they've they've been successful so many times but anyways that's all to say that like and that your advisor doesn't really conceive, doesn't have experience being like, oh, you can't do this, like you won't get a job out of this. Like, you know, they're the one for whom it, it all worked out basically. And so they can't really, not only do they not have this sort of like experience or conception of, advise you on what to do instead of academia. It's like, they don't uh, like not believe in you. Like it's part of, they're like personally invested in you as well, basically and like they want you to have the same success and happiness that they have basically.
3: I think I would say like if we're talking about also or as we're thinking about deconstructing institutions, I think this, the university is set up to kind of build this idea for the humanities to build this idea that this is your pathway, right? You get in, you write, you publish, you teach, and then from that you come out as a scholar and you're able to like continue the production of knowledge in the same way. But I think in STEM, they're they're from the beginning given industry opportunities and expectations. And I think, I mean, you can even get a master's in some STEM field and you have an expectation of industry. If you go in humanities and you get a master's, like you have an expectation of not <laughs> being able to teach at all. Like they they let you know like right? there's there's so much competition that you won't be in that. So I think the expectations Seem to put pressure on humanities to kind of feel like this is my only pathway. And once I'm in a PhD in the humanities, my next step is to keep pushing against all these obstacles until I get that teaching job. And I think it takes a long time for us to recognize that not everyone wants to be a professor and not everybody wants to be in academia. And the PhD can mean something else. So I think that a lot of our advisors would never. In that position of industry, most most of the faculty are probably not. I think it's more like now, with with the increase of adjunct positions and people starting to really think like, do I want a life as an adjunct? Because that's probably what it's going to turn into. I think that's when we start rethinking. Okay, what does the degree actually mean, and what can we do with it, and why are we not creating an institution that really bolsters multiple avenues of careers? That's the humanities degree at work, right there, like deconstructing. (laughs) (laughs)
1: When I first got to grad school, I remember there being a lot of resistance, much more resistance than now, like even among other grad students in older cohorts, they were just like, you know, why would I get a PhD if I wanted to do anything other than teaching? It was almost like ridiculous to pose the question, can you go into a different path with a PhD? And it's it's kind of optimistic to me that more people are talking about it openly without stigma. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys have experienced this. Alt-Act felt sort of stigmatized in the past.
0: Yeah. I mean, I still kind of feel that way now when I've had people in my program kind of act like I'm not as serious because I'm considering things that aren't academia or like a tenure track position. And so, but I mean, I think overall it's gotten better. It's more openly talked about just because like, you know, not everyone can get a tenure track job and adjuncting isn't sustainable for people. Mm-hmm. So we have to think about, you know, other things that we can do with the degree. And I really like this idea that, you know, we're deconstructing certain things. And so like, that's like a skill that we have. And I think that, you know, we've seen in the world how we
3: really need people who can do that. And I still think there's a little stigma too about it. Like I, I think like what you're saying, Lauren, there's like like this idea that maybe some people who are thinking about alternative careers are not serious. But I think it's because the debate's mainly been about like our institutions. Our institutions are invested in like producing people who will teach. Like that's kind of been their goal so far. And it's it's kind of we are kind of talking against the dominant narrative when we say, Well, let's think about opportunities, and I think a lot of people don't even know what opportunities to like create for students, like we're talking about internships, but like how many universities actually have a a thriving internship program for humanities PhDs, rather than just like a couple internships being offered.
1: All right, and I don't want to like take up too much of you guys' time. Thank you for like a wonderful conversation, and I'm really glad we got to see each other again one year later. And I hope we do this again next year. This ASMR was inspired by Adrian Marie Brown's Emergent Strategy a book that describes itself as radical self-help, society help, and planet help designed to shape the futures we want to live. This is a slice of the future we want to live in. This segment ran in the original podcast we created at the NHC Regional Podcasting Institute in summer 2020.
2: Take because as long as, as you like to write your dissertation, we'll, we'll, your dissertation. You we'll you fund
3: you as long as you need.
2: Your we'll teach teaching public and public engagement will try just as much actually,
3: as public
2: review,
3: will be taken into consideration, consideration equally during tenure
1: review. Your advisor can
2: We do not regret to inform you. We do not regret to inform you that your book manuscript has been accepted.
3: Your advisor cares about you personally and professionally. Your advisor is complimenting you on how theoretically sophisticated and original your work is.
2: Food and alcohol, and alcohol will be served at the event.
3: Be at the real
2: event. warm food real, too, real not just, the food too. just a vegetable not platter. Not just
3: a vegetable platter.
2: We would, we would like, like to inform you that all platter. your all recommendations have submitted, submitted. their letters, their
3: letters their letter ample, time, the ample time, the time, time
2: before the due date. Yes, yes, I would. Like I would like to, to ask a question, question about your presentation, presentation that affirms your argument and is not in any way hostile
0: be like water be like water
2: be like water be like water
0: be like water be like water
3: be like water
2: be like water
1: And now, here's our interview with Andy Mink, Vice President of Education Programs at the National Humanities Center.
4: My name is Andy Mink. I'm the Vice President of Education Programs at the National Humanities Center.
0: And so, how did you end up in that uh, position? We were really curious about what your career trajectory was.
4: So, I've been working in the higher ed world since 2001. I started my career at the University of Virginia at the Virginia Center for Digital History, which at the time was one of the first and earliest digital humanities centers in the country. And I I think that date, in some ways, is pretty important because it maps directly onto sort of a a cusp when living in this digital information age uh, became a lifestyle for all of us, right? It became, became part of our culture and part of our daily. A way of living and communicating. And I was I was hired by a former professor and a mentor named Ed Ayers. And Ed, as an historian, was very intrigued by the use of digital humanities to make visible his work as an historian, and in particular, a way to both access and make sense of 19th century archives. And so his first in the sort of the seminal project was called Valley of the Shadow. And I was hired in sort of typical Ed Airs fashion with, I don't even know what my job description was. It was probably like a sentence, like, like make, up, make up ways for this digital humanities work to influence classrooms, go. But, you know, I say it that way on purpose because at the time, and it's so hard to remember now, two decades later, at the time, I think we were all extremely new to this idea of having access to all of man's documents. Not all of man's knowledge, but all of man's documents all in one place. And what that, what the implications of that are for non experts to have access to the same records and resources that professional academics have. So my work largely focused on the connection between that scholarly world, a scholarly world increasingly affected by digital technology, with the classroom, mostly in the K 12 level. So we've got all this stuff at UVA. We've got you know, access and expertise and archives, but what, what, could, what could high school or middle school teachers do with this? And then by extension, what could their students do with it? So I began working there just as the digital revolution exploded much more quickly and sort of subversively than probably we all realized. Uh, that work really expanded to a national level. I was there for 13 years before coming to North Carolina, to the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill to do very similar work and now at the center, I'm doing even more similar work. And so if I, so if I could ring all that out and kind of give you one sort of snapshot of what I do now, which I think is very similar to what I did then, it is creating opportunities for scholars and educators and the general public to collaborate and converse and help make sense of our world using all the tools of the scholar and the teacher and the community Um, And being able to add those those kind of world views in one place and and make better sense of who we are and and how we relate. Saying it all uh, like that, it seems pretty circuitous like how in the world did I wind up here? I don't know. (laughs) I rode the digital wave is what I did.
1: Oh, I see. But that makes a lot of sense, given what you're doing now with the Graduate Summer Institute. as you know, we both participated in a podcasting institute for graduate students held by the National Humanities Center. So we were just very curious also about how did the NHC get started doing programming for graduate students, both teaching and, you know, some more unconventionally podcasting?
4: I mean, let me start by suggesting that what the center does and what our primary responsibility is 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 the support of a annual fellowship class of university humanists, academic humanists, who uh, propose a, a project idea and if selected, if awarded, come to the center for a full academic year. And they have zero encumbrances, no other responsibilities. They leave everything behind except this complete intellectual freedom to pursue their research or their writing or their collaborations or, Increasingly digital projects, it it really does feel like this sort of intellectual monastery where everyone is just free to 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 think about and consider and produce uh, these these complicated these sophisticated understandings uh, using the humanities. I'll extend that though by saying that I think the center also leverages the forty four years of, of of our work to support humanists at other levels. So. Each June, for example, we have a month-long, we call it a, uh, a scholar residency program in which universities nominate and send early career scholars on their faculty to the center for a full month. They get the same treatment and the same perks as a year-long fellowship. It's not called a fellowship, but they're able to come and sort of kickstart their career, maybe introduce them to a network and a, a way of approaching their disciplines that, you know, being stuck in the early career. And then similarly, I think what we try to do with grad students is, is no less immersive. You know, my, my whole goal is to provide a structure and a network and a, an environment, a laboratory even for early career scholars, for graduate students to um, have the support and the affirmation and the feedback to become leaders in their fields, period. And it doesn't even quite matter to me kind of what you wind up doing next, whether it's a Tenure track job somewhere, or teaching in an independent school, or working in a museum, or that part doesn't matter. The, the idea is to introduce and bring as colleagues and as equals grad students, PhD students into, into this world, into this National Humanities Center environment that we have. So we began working specifically with grad students six years ago. Uh, that was largely done locally, where those students could come to the center for short facilitated workshops. It was mostly around teaching and learning and instructional design, we brought students in from Duke and UNC and uh, eventually NC State. Um, I think the first year I might have had eight students, and by the second maybe that doubled, and by the third that tripled, and you know, pretty, pretty quickly it became clear to me that universities and PhD programs are designed with a really narrow set of guardrails so that you're doing and experiencing exactly what you need to be a successful academic. But there's all kinds of things outside of those guardrails that they can't provide. And to their credit, and I'm going to say University of Florida in particular, June, remind me you're at Irvine or are you at?
1: Irvine, yes. Yeah, Irvine
4: too. Both of those schools, I would say more than as much or more than any other university has recognized the need and has found the funding to regularly send and promote this to their grad student population. And so I think they get a lot of credit for recognizing that they don't have programs for to support phd students or teaching survey classes they also don't have necessarily the support and uh, not the support the capacity to do these kinds of digital humanities projects and so so i began honestly it was a little bit of a lark uh, i began thinking about not a lark it was it was strategic impulse <laughs> it was very thoughtful very purposeful but also just very instinct, instinctive and uh, I knew Pam from her time at UNC. I talked to Joanna in a couple of moments uh, about different things. And we just sort of made up this idea of having a podcasting institute in San Diego. And my idea at the time was to take this local model and do it regionally so that we've got folks, you know, we'll do one in Southern California. Then we'll do one in New York City. And then we'll do one in, so we could attract. The idea was to put, put them in areas where there are a lot of universities that could send students Little did I realize how much universities would appreciate this and find the funding to actually send students. So I think this is all, of course, pre-pandemic. I think the first year in San Diego, we had, I don't know, five or six schools from Northern Arizona and Southern California. Maybe we had 15 or 20 students. We actually hosted programs here at the center in the summer and maybe had 50 or 60 students. But then the pandemic, which is such a blessing and a curse with a heavy emphasis on curse, pandemic allowed us to transition these to virtual. And I would always rather work in person. It strikes me that I've never met either of you in person, but it did allow us to expand the capacity. So universities were able to send many more students to these virtual programs and we lost something, but I think we worked hard to sort of make it up in other ways. And so to answer your question, how do we wind up working with grad students? It's, it's solely and sheerly a motivation to support scholars at all levels to have access to the resources and opportunities and skills that will advance their careers and they'll become leaders and then come back and join and work with us some more.
0: Was, you know, I was thinking about when you are talking the digital wave, how we've only ever been in this digital space together. June and I have also never met yeah. and we've never met you, but we've worked yeah. really closely, but we've, you know, we've created this kind of community of podcasters. But we were also curious about you know what inspired the nhc to bring people back for the ai conference and kind of do it again in a different way what was your thinking towards the future of kind of continuing these relationships you developed with graduate students
4: well i mean the the easy and and short and sharp answer and then i'll give you a sort of a longer and better one maybe but the sharp answer is it's all about sustaining the community of colleagues that that we've done and we absolutely do this at the center with our fellowship 1500 fellows later for over four decades later we've got a you know a, a pretty robust and full and complete roster of fellows who spent time here and are part of our community and it's it's not quite it's not quite as as elementary as alumni relations but it kind of is right you know we we share this experience and we develop these working even personal relationships and that doesn't end when the programs are over but specifically i am overwhelmed sometimes by the amount, the sheer amount of talent and professionalism and dedication and earnestness that grad students specifically bring to these this kind of work. Fellows, teachers, uh, junior scholars, et cetera, that wonderful, love working with them. But I'm going to tell you, grad students have an untapped level of energy for doing good stuff. And if we can support that and elevate it and amplify that, all the better. So it's really important for me that these programs are not one-offs in that we continue to work together after your degree is completed, when you move on to your work, et cetera. But the other part of that is it's nice to say, it's nice for me to say that, but the other important part is to walk the talk. And the walking part is we're done, but now we have a lot more opportunities for you to now continue to contribute if you choose. So, you know, we, we did the AI conference. This is the first virtual conference we've ever done. And my suggestion to our senior staff was that we utilize, we work with the, the talent of the grad students. And that, by the way, happened, not just with the podcast, it also happened with session facilitation of our discussion groups with students from a different program that we run. So it's really important for me to continue to offer these opportunities and and you know, ultimately in a in an experiential model, um, it's applying what you learned to something real. Yeah, you know, it's one thing to do it for yourself. It's another thing to do it for me and Pam and Joanne and everyone else. It's something else entirely to do it for the world. And we wanted to give you really authentic opportunities to apply what you've done.
1: Yeah. And I I also want to say like when, you know, I got your email for the AI conference, it, you just like made it feel very personal in a way. Right. Like you, like, oh, I'm not sure if Andy remembers who I am, but in the email, it was clear that you, you knew who I was. Absolutely.
4: Dude. I do. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, I mean, honestly, that's just an educator's worldview for me. Like it, it is super important for me that, and I think the center's like this at large, and I think humanists are more like this than not, but you know, knowing people, finding ways to connect, amplifying our work together. I'll be trite and say all boats rise. I mean, we this really is a, a community-minded organization and, and body of work. So, yeah, it was intended to be very personal. And, and I'm glad that you that you felt that.
2: Yeah,
1: for sure. And, like, how um, how do you keep track of everybody? Like, do you just have a good memory for, for everyone? <laughs> yeah, we were part of an institute with how many people... Where they are, maybe like around 30, 50, so? I think 50 students Your group
4: yeah. might've been 50. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not entirely sure how to answer that other than to say our work together matters and the conversations we have. I, I certainly remember you two better than others in that group because we've continued to work together. I would certainly recognize names or faces I've bumped into students at conferences and I know who they, I mean, so part of it, I guess, is just personality and sort of the way that I approach this level of work. And think too about your own teaching. I bet if you've taught five seminar classes, you would you would know a lot of those students. You know, you may not be close to them or keep up with them or follow them on Twitter, but you you would know them if you bumped into them. And more importantly, they would know you. So I think that's part of it. But I think the other thing is, I think it's just to continue to offer opportunities and say we're still doing this work. And when you're ready, we would love to have you contribute.
1: So we were wondering, you know, how does the NHC imagine, you know, whether it's continuing the podcasting institutes or developing other institutes engaging with grad students and um, graduate education in the future?
4: I think those two, at least for a while, are will be annual events for us. Um, we also, by the way, expanded the podcasting institute to include faculty for the first time. So This past June, we had a, it's exactly the same program you both did, except it was for faculty. And it filled in about a week. Uh, We had 53, which was our cap, and we had 28 on the waiting list. So the idea there was to, you know, it's great for us to, you know, get you as PhD students all psyched up on podcasting. But if you go back and the folks you work with don't have the same frame of reference, it's difficult. So we wanted to essentially introduce And bring forward faculty members. We had every, we had assistant professors all the way up to emeritus. I mean, we had a broad spectrum. And they had a wonderful week, but they had some hiccups that you guys didn't seem to have. And the number one hiccup that I noticed, and it took us about a day to work through this, was this reality that every word out of their mouth, or pen, or typewriter, or keyboard is so finely tuned and perfected before it sees the public that they were super nervous about putting out sort of good but not great material. They really struggled with it. And I think they struggled with working in groups. They're so used to being in their own heads and by themselves that the idea of collaborating in a group, I would say half of them showed up thinking they were going to do a podcast all by themselves. And when we told them no, they're like, what, I don't want to do this with other people. And it took them about a day to realize that Having three other people figure stuff out with you is a godsend. You know, I should say, to be fully transparent, the idea of doing podcasting was a little bit of an impulse, too. It's, I mean, I'm not a podcaster. Uh, Pam actually isn't a podcaster. But when we decided to work together, this this is what we identified as an interesting new set of experiences to give grad students. Before that, I was doing a lot of work with geospatial technologies. We still do, but we kind of moved to podcasting for a while. And I hope that there are other things that we can start to develop in this model of the program that you guys participated in. Maybe it replaces podcasting. Maybe it's an addition to, maybe we alternate them. Who knows? One, for example, that has come up recently is data management, like archival work. You know, that's not the same thing at all as podcasting, but, you know, it's a skill set that a lot of students might find intriguing. I think podcasting brings the additional benefit of being public facing digital humanities work. And this notion of writing for the public and offering your voice as commentary and helping people understand things is really important.
0: Yeah. And I've always liked podcasting because of the access it's, Mm -hmm. you know, a little bit more accessible medium to create, but also very accessible for other people to listen to. And it does have this such a wide reach, but then it's also so intimate at the same time you're hearing someone's actual voice. So that was why I was really drawn to it, but just to, backpedal a little bit since June uh, and I never did one of the teaching institutes. We were a little curious to hear about what they're like and kind of what the goals of those um, kinds of programs are for the graduate students.
4: That program is very subversively designed to offer complete affirmation for your role as an educator at the higher ed level. Knowing that whether they mean to or not in most situations, the teaching part is kind of excluded in terms of importance. You know, you do your research, you do your work, you, you know, you meet these needs, but the idea of actually teaching, you're sort of left to do up your own on your own. It doesn't mean you don't have teaching learning centers. It doesn't mean you don't mind. You might have a mentor. You might have, you know, a small group of people who help you out, but there's nothing in most schools, there's nothing formal. So the most important thing we try to do is affirm the importance and the value of education, and then provide a wide variety of first person vignettes on how you might accomplish that. So, yes, we do some pedagogical training, although it's not designed to be a teaching workshop. We do some technology, although it's not designed to be a tools workshop. But we do really emphasize both the mechanics of teaching, but also the climate and culture of being a teacher. Everything from how do you walk into a hundred and fifty student survey with a bunch of big white guys and you're a small African-American female and you want to find your authority. How do you do that? How do you have that conversation? So we just try to provide a variety of ways to uh, to to give that support. And This one has a whole series of past fellows and scholars at different levels who come in to share their story. And then the group project, because they work in small groups, just as you did, is to create an interdisciplinary syllabus. And we really focus on interdisciplinary work, and we focus on accessible syllabi. So we talk a lot about how to write a syllabus that all students of all needs and all backgrounds can access. How to, you know, uh, make curricular choices so that students can see themselves in the material. How do you create assessments? What do you get from student evaluations? All that stuff, but it's broken down in discrete. Kind of workshops
1: that's really lovely just to to hear that the primary goal of the teaching institutes is is to affirm teaching right that's pretty it's, much it
4: yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean that's our goal so
1: undervalued you know otherwise you know we're given constantly given the message that research is what gets you promoted it's what gets you recognized it's what gets you a job in academia. And so I, I love that you guys are trying to provide uh, the sort of like alternative space where teaching is affirmed.
4: One of our students, maybe it was somebody from Alabama, like on the first day told the joke that they have on their, their campus, which is, you know, what's the quickest way to not get tenure? Win the teaching award. You know, so we just wanted to push back on that. And in fact, there are like maybe institutionally, that's it. What I find is that there are so many faculty members who are not that, and absolutely want to support and have conversations around this work with you as grad students. And you may not know them, they may not be in your department, they may not be in your committee, but there's so many allies that we want to connect you with them.
1: That's wonderful. So on a similar kind of line of thinking, I feel like the NHC is doing so much to address these what what you perceive as like these gaps in uh, mm-hmm. graduate education what kind of structural changes do you think should be made to graduate education
4: i say this very smugly on the outside of this conversation right so i i am not in administration i've i've never been don't want to be i like i like being able to sort of hover outside of this and and um, and support individuals and schools in their in their growth mindset. I think so. I'm going to rephrase your question, if it's okay with you. Rather than saying what I think they should do, because there's so many barriers to doing things, I'll tell you what I think is will will benefit, if not save, humanities education at the graduate level and beyond. And I'm just I'm going to echo some of the things that I know Robert Newman, our president, has said and written about and things that I've seen in the programs that we've run and the fellows that we talk with. And it starts with the value of interdisciplinary work, working in silos, working, you know, on your own field with no no understanding of the viewpoints of other fields, I think is a real drawback. One of the things we see from the graduate teaching and learning project program is that when they do their projects together, we always match them so that they are between, uh, it's interdisciplinary and between universities, just like yours. And, you know, for a philosopher and a literary scholar to be in conversation, maybe for the first time in a long time in the, in the context of this project is often very illuminating. They both kind of realize how much they have in common and how very, very different they use language and logic and questioning to sort of unpack how they understand things. And that's a real benefit. Um, and being able to show that, I think, in constructive and substantive ways would really help uh, all humanists. And the more that grad graduate schools can embrace that and value that, awesome. Uh, the second thing is, um, and this came up a lot in the faculty program that we ran in June, is this idea. We talked about it some in our graduate student, but the faculty were really interested in how to have public-facing work like podcasting be evaluated as scholarship and therefore be counted towards their professional body of work. This isn't, it's not just fun stuff you do on the side. This isn't a hobby. This is like real moving transformational work for a lot of people. And we had, you know, chairs and established scholars and past fellows and, you know, folks who have a little bit of clout who are, who are really, I think, surprised by the value of podcasting. And then by extension, aware that it it's really not acknowledged right now It specifically but maybe work like this more broadly is not acknowledged in the way that really serves them and they're really interested in figuring that piece out now maybe that trend transitions into graduate education as well maybe that's has impact on what a dissertation might look like or you know what what your review might look like and that has all kinds of unintended consequences like it's, it's a slightly different answer, but I think it's a parallel. Uh, I've done a lot of work with a guy named A.D. Carson at University of Virginia, who's a professor in the music department, and he's a hip-hop artist. And he did his dissertation at Clemson as a hip-hop record. And now he's at UVA on tenure track, and he does all of his work as hip-hop records. Now, the problem is nobody knows how to review that. <laughs> like, how do, you, how do you say what's good or bad? And his most recent record is being published by the University of Michigan Press, and it's the first time ever so what, what would a podcast dissertation look like? What would a public-facing you know, article or monograph look like? I mean, all those things have lots of different moving pieces that I think I'm hopeful that, that we'll start to look at. And we have had conversations here about trying to lead some kind of convening of higher ed leaders to have that conversation. It's more than us, but we would be a sort of a hub to start that. Um, so those are two things, I think. The third thing I hear quite a bit, and maybe what led us to this work with grad students is the brutal reality that any professional academic job at any level, community college, small liberal arts school, R1 school, K-12 school district, whatever it is, there are so many skill sets required to do your job well, like managing budgets, working in a group, drawing consensus, explaining yourself to people who don't have your training um, delivering reports uh, meeting deadline like all that stuff that goes into things like project management and working collaboratively with others to draw and reach consensus are things that most grad programs don't emphasize which is why by the way we started doing these group projects if nothing else you have to sit down with three other strangers and like do something in a week and that's that that is a skill that's not just something you I'm hopeful that everybody learns something from that experience. So those are three things I I think that are big and, and will definitely affect the sort of the next, the next tide of humanities of higher ed.
0: Right. And so building on that, we were wondering if you had any other professionalization advice for graduate students. I've already said, you know, working in groups, managing budgets, these things that we don't necessarily learn in graduate school, but,
3: Any other
4: kinds of advice? You know, I I always feel a little bashful because I'm fully aware of how overtaxed all grad students already are. And in some ways it's kind of set up for that. So any time I say like, and do this too, it always feels weird to me with a full acknowledgement that work-life balance, I know. I I saw both of you guys roll your eyes. You didn't, but you should have. I know the notion of that is really important finding community, finding you know a, a social connection that goes beyond your department doors and walls and barriers. I'm, I'm hopeful that a lot of students maintain at least contact with others if they're meeting through these programs. I met with a grad student a few days ago from UGA who was saying how all the students on that campus have sort of find, found ways now to work together and even though they're in different fields and departments and stay connected, you know, finding that kind of social outlet certainly, I am being so my answer actually right now is a little bashful because I, I feel weird saying, do more to help yourself. So I'm going to rephrase your question too. Thank you for being patient with me and say the skills, I think the experiences that will be the most helpful after grad school, however you decide you can get these, will be connecting, if not your work, The way you do your work with community issues, with issues of civic concern, the podcasts that everybody created, I don't think any of them had anything to do with their research or dissertation, but all of them were obvious displays of their work as historians and philosophers and film critics, et cetera. So just being able to sort of apply that worldview to our community and our world, I think is really effective. I can tell you just as a side note, maybe this is a little farther down the line, but I bet not. Easily, the most important thing I ever did career wise uh, was serve on boards. Board service is extremely helpful because by serving on a board, whether it's your local museum or something in your field, or just maybe it's not even something to do with academics, but with all the boards I've served on, I've met business leaders and financial people and legal issues I never would have had exposure to. But suddenly I'm learning all this stuff, but I'm not really even doing it. And of course, service boards you're not paid to do it. In fact, sometimes it costs you money, but I always found those to be the most powerful in terms of building network and, and a language of how nonprofit and academic organizations work.
0: So then we're kind of getting to the end of our question set that we had for you, but I also wanted to give you a chance to kind of, if there was anything else you didn't think we addressed that you'd like to talk about or anything else you'd like to add, I just kind of wanted to have an open floor.
4: I mean, thank you for letting me be pretty extemporaneous and just just respond to what you guys have asked. I I would say the thing that I like the most about our graduate student programs, and we did this more probably in the teaching and learning than we did the podcasting, although I hope that Robert's note to each of you after the AI conference was along these lines, but Um, I often have Matthew Booker, who is the vice president of scholarly programs, sort of offer a few remarks at the very end of these week-long programs. But what he often says, and what I, so what the thing I would like to repeat and maybe have included is the the work that grad students are doing now, even though it feels sometimes marginalized, maybe dismissed, maybe invisible, it is what the humanities has become, right? This is the important work. It's not in some ways, it's not the senior scholars that we have come here to be fellows. It's the, it's the work and the approach that grad students are taking to their work that is, that is the future of the humanities. It really is. It's not, it's not a trite thing to say. It's not, you know, it's not a pep talk. It's, I'm always reminded when I go to our lobby and I look at all the class photographs, just how much the fellowship program has changed in terms of who's attending, who's a fellow, and also the work they're doing. And if you are able to gain a set of experiences and expertise in something like writing an audio narrative podcast form, piece of scholarship by a scholar, holy moly, you're gonna you got so many skills that other people don't have.
0: This podcast was written, produced, and hosted by Lauren Burrell Cox and June Key with support from the University of California Humanities Research Institute and the University of Florida Center for the Humanities and the Public Sphere. Voice work by Mirna Wasaf and Kevin Warham. The cover art was designed by Kathleen Martin and Amy Owen at UF Class Communications. Special thanks to Barbara Mennell, Kelly A. Brown, and David Theo Goldberg for their support and guidance.